Welcome to the Ides of Macro, where we discuss investing, trading, and big picture frameworks, all through the lens of global macroeconomics. This is the bit where I remind you that none of this podcast is investment advice. In fact, this is purely for entertainment and educational purposes. But please do hit that subscribe button if you want the latest videos from Lycan as soon as they're available. And with that, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Ides of Macro podcast, where we talk about all things to do with the macro world and the economy, etc. And today it's my absolute pleasure to have Ed Harrison, my former colleague at Real Vision uh, and uh, a long-time collaborator with us here today. Ed, good to see you. And I, I believe that you are now head of um, FX and rates reporting at Bloomberg. That's right. Yeah, in the Americas. And Roger, oh, just a great pleasure to talk to you again. I mean, uh, uh, it's, it's been a long time since we've talked about these ideas and I'm really looking forward to this time. Well, uh, I'd love to get straight into it because yeah, there is so much going on at the moment in terms of hard landing, soft landing, no landing. When is it going to happen? So the sequencing. And it seems that at the moment there's a lot of kind of view on the rates market because the rates market we're seeing yields testing the highs when we look at the long end. Obviously, we've seen two yields quite some time ago broke the previous highs. Now we're seeing those 10 years starting to move. I guess the question that a lot of people are asking is, do we get yields that move significantly higher first, or do we get the sort of slowdown that comes sooner rather than later that means that actually yields typically then roll over, so actually we won't get much of a, an increase in yields from here? Which way do you go in that? Because that's going to be essential for then understanding where we expect risk assets to perform afterwards. Yeah, you know, and I'm of the uh, variety that says that uh, the rates market is really important in terms of leading indicators uh, that will then impact other assets. So you think of that as risk-free assets. Uh, downside risk is what people are thinking when they're getting involved in fixed income, especially the risk-free rate, that is, government bonds. And so it, it's a very different sort of uh, mindset for those investors, they're looking for the not the upside the way that equity investors are looking. They're looking for the downside. And so what we've seen in the rates market is is, is that uh, you know they've very much resisted on the long end of the curve the whole uh, uh, soft landing narrative. There's still a uh, inversion in the curve that would suggest that we're going to have a softish or even hard landing down the line, which means a recession. And then the question is, is uh, what's the Fed's response uh, given all of that? I think that, number one, we have to look at unemployment in the United States in particular. And I think that when we see unemployment at a very low level, what it says is that we're going to have a high-pressure economy until you uh, have that recession. And so just by uh, natural circumstance, where we are on some level eventually means that down the line, you're going to have to uh, have the Fed keep rates high. And that naturally means that we're going to have a lot of pressure on, on the long end of the curve. So the long end of the curve, just to summarize, they're telling us there's going to be a recession, and the Fed's going to cut. But we're not anywhere close to that yet. We need to see that long end back up a little bit more before uh, that recession occurs. And, and when you mean back up, you mean yields going higher, basically. And, and do you think that 
Exactly. And because there's some elements to this, which is, you know, there's, and I'd love to get your thoughts on positioning because it's very clear that the asset management community is long. And they've been looking for this, this hard landing narrative or the long bonds are expecting yields to have peaked, the Fed to cut, the economy to roll over. But then there's also this controversial, we've got this huge short position in the non-commercial sector, which is speculative hedge funds. Although I think a lot of that I feel is against other products. So they are market neutral positions. And a lot of this, this classification now includes those hedge funds that became shadow banks, i.e. market makers, the citadels of the world. So I'm not sure that the short futures is a huge short. I think it's neutral. Certainly there's a long. And then you've got this issuance coming. Some people are saying it could be as much as 1.9 trillion over the next six months. Where do you feel all that goes? Where do you feel positioning is? Who is the most sensitive of all those positions? Because that's obviously an important element too, in that maybe that those long onlys are actually happy to accumulate more as yields go up because they're collecting that income over the next you know, X number of years. Yeah, so the, the last auctions were very interesting. So the, uh, the Treasury came out and said, we're going to sell off more bonds than you anticipated. So the, the, uh, the, the amount of supply is going to increase. And so we started last week to see the auctions. We saw the threes auction off. We saw the tens auction off. And now we've seen the thirties. And, you know, the threes and the tens, there was a decent amount of demand for those. Uh, the thirties is when we saw... Uh, indigestion from the market, and what that's telling you is is, is that you know the uh, the path of least resistance in terms of those dynamics that you were just talking about, Roger, is higher for rates, and that means that on the one hand you have uh, real money funds that they're looking at four percent real or, or sorry four percent nominal for tens and thirties and saying wow you know let's just lock in these rates but then you have the specs and you have a lot of other people coming in and they're saying that you know we need to get these rates higher and i think that that's the path of least resistance and the 30-year auction tells you that that's where we're ha heading we're heading towards a retest of the the highs on the 10-year which is about 424 in october of last year and i think that that is going to be a seminal event in terms of how we think about equities in that environment with the discount rate increasing and you know i've seen a lot of people have talked about there's a you know, it was a pennant it's starting to break but that sort of flag shape in in those yields which potentially suggests that the 10-year could get to maybe five percent um, and that that 5% could be destabilizing to these other risk assets, another contraction um, of multiples, etc. Um, but I, I, you talked about the Fed. Do you think that we'll see a big enough move in yields to mean that the long end does the work of slowing things down again? Or do you think we might get to an environment where we have high yields, we have still lower levels of unemployment, we have equity markets that still manage to hold in, and even if CPI headline has rolled over and gone, let's just pretend, towards zero, the Fed might still need to actually raise rates because they'll be looking 12 months down the line and thinking strong equity market, strong economy, etc. Do you think the Fed are going to have to come in and surprise or do you think that the 10-year yields going up further is the bit that actually might cap everything else and force other risk assets to then roll off and roll down? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think um, it could go either way. Uh, the way I would characterize it is, is that with unemployment as low as it is, unless we have a recession, in which case unemployment goes up, the, the short end of the curve is fixed at a very high level. You know, meaning that 
let's look down the, the future. The future, let's say, is three, 4% unemployment uh, with inflation rolling over to 2%. So now we have 4% unemployment, we have 2%, which is a soft landing, let's call that. Uh, 4% unemployment is not a very high level. And that's not a level that is, is conducive to the Fed, even at 2% inflation uh, cutting rate. So we're at a very high bar for them to cut. Uh, unless you have a recession. And so then the question becomes, what are the economic uh, outcomes, both on the unemployment side and on the inflation side? And I think that, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of pressure, as I was saying earlier, towards getting rates up over time. So my sense is is, is that uh, we don't know whether the Fed on the short end will be forced to, to raise rates, but at a minimum, if inflation doesn't come down, uh, unemployment doesn't go up, they may need to surprise. Uh, and, and that anchor on the short end is, is inexorably pulling up the, the long end. And to the degree that uh, you, know, uh, you have the short end going up, you're obviously gonna have the long end going up even more. And what's what's going to kind of change? Because yeah, we've seen this this unemployment level that's been low. We've seen a strong equity market, and people talk about financialization, which is equity markets do well. CEOs hoard their employees, so unemployment remains relatively tight. I don't think it's necessarily strong, but tight. And you need the equity market to roll over to see unemployment pick up, because equity market rolls over, CEOs become more cautious, cut jobs. But if you don't get the unemployment, then actually the 401ks and all the rest of it's still coming into the market. How does this actually start to roll over? I mean, is it just a case of it started to happen? We're getting the downgrades now to the past non-farm payrolls, which all beat expectations, but are now being downgraded. Is there a sense that we could be, you know, one day in the next few months where we look at unemployment and go, well, it might be below 4%, but if we think about revisions in 12 months' time and look back, it would have been half percent higher. How do we deal with this? Because... Unemployment is notoriously lagging and it's not a very good timing tool, but it's unemployment that is absolutely key to recession and what we'd normally see is these tradable lows in equity markets. So how do we play that or look at that? Yeah, I think that the, the key factor in all of that is the earnings recession that we're in because, um, you know, we're, we, we started to get year over year comparisons in earnings, uh, corporate earnings in the United States that were negative in Q4 2022. So we're in the third quarter uh, uh, of uh, negative earnings. Uh, and supposedly this is the low. So the whole soft landing narrative says that uh, we're not going to, you know, roll over in terms of the uh, unemployment picture. But if it does roll over, i.e. things are worse than we think that they are and, and we're going into a recession, then that earnings recession will continue uh, to gather momentum, i.e. it doesn't necessarily have to be that uh, earnings recession, the earnings recession is worse in, in the next quarters, but that we still are in an earnings recession in Q3, Q4, uh, etc. And with the, the rates narrative ha- happening at the same time, you have a, a relatively high discount rate, you have poor earnings that are rolling over, and you have a recession. All of those would combine, therefore, to be a drag on equities. I think that's when the equities give in. And you combine that with uh, the nascent uh, credit situation that we still haven't had at this point yet. 
and that's sort of the that's when we start to see the the risk asset reaction, both in terms of high yield and IG credit, but also in terms of equities as well. And it sounds like you think this could be a relatively elongated affair because you know everyone's got this uh, recency bias and everyone thinks of nearly every kind of slowdown or, or kind of problem for the equity market in the US at least has been a sudden downdraft and then bang straight out of it almost as fast as you came. And that's what everyone kind of expects, which is why a lot of institutions no longer bother with hedges because they go, well, what's the point? Within three months, we're back to where we were. It sounds like this one could actually be, you know, in the way it's been drawn out, getting to the potential recession. The recession itself, you think maybe will not just be a in and out quick affair, but one which has lots of different reasons that just keeps on going and keeps on going and maybe is an extended uh, type of slowdown. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the credit situation and also the bank situation because we're dealing with something we haven't dealt with in, in 40 years and that is, is is that we have a loan book at these banks that is, uh, you know, giving them rates that are not competitive in the current environment. That means that their earnings, that you know, their revenue uh, is not good relative to potentially the amount that they're going to have to pay for uh, deposits and uh, you know uh, to uh, to keep their their asset uh, base stable. And so we saw this in the 1980s. You know there was in the United States the SNL crisis, but that was a very long drawn out affair. And so I think that that's the the prevailing problem is is, is that ultimately these banks. Uh, uh, the community banks, the regional banks, they're not going to be able to increase credit in this environment as all of this is ongoing. Not, it's not a, a systemic problem in sort of the 2007, uh, 2008 version, but it's still a, a, you know, a, a slow bleed that's creating uh, pressure, uh, downward pressure on credit growth. And that you know will continue to be a problem, especially in commercial real estate, which is one of the areas that people have flagged as a likely uh, credit problem when we have uh, a recession or a downturn. So this is rather than what we've seen in the past, where we've seen sort of credit events, which have been you know the the, the credit markets have just gone out of sync between medium, short, medium, and long term. Um, effectively credit opportunities. What you're saying here is this is more going to be like a starvation of credit because the banks who would be particularly greasing the wheels of regional parts of the economy are just going to be saying, no, no, we, we tightened our lending standards. We're going to do less of it. And it's not zero anymore to those who, who can get it. It's basically none because we're just not going to do it. So it's going to be a slow starvation of credit for the economy. Is that the way you see this? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, in, in a best case scenario, uh, you're still going to have these banks uh, up against it until their loan book uh, rolls off, uh, because you know they went into uh, high duration uh, assets. That is either uh, they they took on you know risk free so called risk free assets, or they have loans, mortgages, uh, CRE that's on their books. You know, with a duration four, five, six years to go. And those assets are not earning them the amount of money they need. Then they're going to have these charge-offs for the incipient credit that we have now, and they're going to say, "Well, hold on, we're not in trouble. Uh, you know, we're not in bankruptcy trouble, but we're going to we're going to slowly strangle the, this credit growth uh, uh, out of the the economy." 
So what it sounds like there is that you think that this is going to be kind of a slow death in credit, particularly from the regional banks, because it's not like one of those, as you said earlier, a shocking credit event like 2008, where there's a liquidity mismatch or whatever. But this is just going to be banks drawing in, hunkering down and just say, saying tight lending standards. We're just not going to put credit into the regional economies. And that's going to be a, a slow burning, longer term story by the sounds of it. Yeah, you know, and one of the interesting bits about that is this bifurcation in the market between the regional banks and the larger banks. You know, the larger banks, when you think of credit disintermediation, they're catering to, uh, uh, through the capital markets, the larger corporations, the S&P 500 corporations. So, you know, those companies, uh, their balance sheets are probably relatively good and they can get uh, money through the capital markets. But then when you look at smaller, small and medium sized companies that are much more dependent upon uh, banks and financial institutions, they're going to be the ones that are going to be starved for capital because those institutions just won't be able to supply that credit growth. So that's this slow strangulation. It's not everywhere within the economy, per se, that is going to see that impact, but it also Will, it will be the places where you're going to see the incremental growth in, um, in uh, new businesses. Like when we think about the birth death model, as an example, in uh, the unemployment uh, numbers that come out, you know, non-farm payrolls for the last month showed something like 280,000 uh, jobs on a non-seasonally adjusted basis for the month of, uh, of June, I believe it was, not July. Uh, that were added to the economy. But is that really possible when we're seeing uh, after the Silicon Valley bank incident that we're getting that many jobs? The answer is no. So one of the reasons that we should expect to see revisions and that we've, we've seen negative revisions anyway uh, is, is because those companies are not being formed. So in terms of the birth of, of, of new companies and the death of old companies, small and medium-sized businesses, we're definitely at a point where the numbers, the model is not correct relative to the credit situation that we're having. And so that's where that, that slow burn is, is going to occur. And it's already happening as we speak. And that sort of goes to what we've sort of seen already, which is, if you go back to 2022, we saw small businesses and the University of Michigan consumer sentiment, both of those levels, this is the optimism in small businesses, at levels that you're only ever used to see during a recession, in the midst of a recession, but we didn't get a recession then. Seems that this has been one of those periods where with last year's price shock, but not a, a, an economy-wide recession because of probably fiscal hangover from COVID, etc. We've got these pockets of kind of industry recessions or sector recessions, but we've never had that kind of convergence recession, which we saw in 2008 and obviously suddenly with COVID. Seems like this is going to be that, that area is going to be in recession, then this bit, and we're going to continue to see this. And, you know, regions within the U.S. will probably be starved of credit before the others. Does that mean we're going to get maybe elongated, but therefore a relatively shallow recession because it doesn't all get concentrated into one small period of time, but it gets elongated out? And potentially, does that mean we don't get a nationwide true recession in the way that the statisticians would say? But we just get this weakness here, weakness there. And does that actually allow maybe things to muddle through because it's never concentrated in one go? Or do you think the credit events that are coming mean we will get something more concentrated? Yeah, I think that the combination of the high pressure economy 
and uh, this rolling uh, regional industry recession will eventually end in a recession of some sort. And the precursor for that is, you know, recessions from 20 and 30 years or 30 and 40 years ago. That is, you know, 81, 82, uh, uh, you know, 1990, 91. Like think about 1990, 91. There we had a uh, we had high yield. The junk market went uh, was terrible. SNL crisis, we had CRE loans, et cetera. And that was the first jobless recovery. But when we look back, we're looking at that particular recession as relatively benign. Even the, the recession that ended uh, the tech bubble was benign relative to the recession that we had in 2007 and eight. So really it's possible to have these regional recessions uh, going back to the, the, the 1990s where you know Boston, because of the tech workers and because of the withdrawal of uh, military aid in San, in San Diego, you have recessions that are local pocket recessions in the U.S. But uh, it's not like a, a you know a generalized recession. And one of the key factors at this point in time is household balance sheets are still relatively good, and uh, we we are not necessarily foreseeing a. Re, a residential real estate uh, bubble collapsing that, you know, the household balance sheets being good and the fact that their principal asset is not under threat at this point in time is very helpful for a soft-ish landing, if not a soft landing. Do you think that there is a, you know, when we talk about households, and I think, you know, one of the things that has moved on, particularly since 2007 and eight, and then obviously since COVID is that Households look like they're in better shape. I mean, when you, th the, I think it's an abomination when people say household debt to GDP because GDP it might not be the household element of GDP that's really driving that. So households haven't done well. But the, also that that point being that, you know, average and medians, you know, the disparity in household wealth means that some households are massively skewing those figures. But your average and your or your median, for instance, household is actually maybe in a worse scenario than they were before. So I'm not, I don't know whether households, how good a shape they are. Maybe in aggregate they look okay, but maybe when you dig into it, they're not. Same with corporates. Corporates have sort of learned a bit of le their lesson. And obviously where the issues really lie now seems to be more the public sector. But again, does that mean that this takes a while to feed through? It doesn't suddenly happen, bang, and you know, easily tradable if you were there at the right time. Does this just become a complex mesh of different things happening in different directions throughout this extended time period? Yeah, I think that's, that's a good read on that, because when you think about uh, 2007 and 8 uh, and the trajectory of uh, the principal asset uh, um, houses, the, you know, a lot of people were underwater. They were rebuilding their balance sheets through, say, 2013, 14, and only then did they resurface. And so that's relatively recent. And that whole deleveraging process continued. And the same thing is true to a degree for corporates. So we're still in a period where the positives of the deleveraging that we had through the uh, the, the 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 end of the the uh, the last decade is still with us. But you know, obviously, the longer we go without a recession, the more risk people are willing to take in terms of leveraging up. And we see this with uh, auto loans in particular uh, in the U.S. Uh, households. My understanding is is that it's actually the upper middle class that is starting to see uh, the pinch. And that's very worrying in terms of a recession 
because they're the ones who have the spending power. And if they stop spending uh, because they're starting to see the pinch, then I think it's, it's going to be a more difficult trajectory. So I, I think that uh, especially because the large financial institutions look better, uh, it's much less likely that we're going to have this so-called Minsky moment uh, this time than last time. But that doesn't mean we're out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. And how do people think, or how do you think people should think about this in terms of, let's say, the equity market? Because um, I've stated it before, and I'll state it every time, that you always get a tradable low during every recession. But how deep is that low? You know, that's what really matters. 1991 was a, um, an extended recession, but not a deep recession. But the equity market low was a relatively shallow one. 1980, 1982, both relatively shallow. Although 2001 to 2003 was quite a shallow recession, we had that 50% pullback in the broad equity market because we were in an equity bubble, 2008, obviously. Because this matters, because we could all predict a deep recession, but if we predict an elongated, yeah, let's say an elongated recession rather than deep, but then equity markets only have a little bit of a, a, a flutter and no more, then actually we, we've maybe not done the right thing or got, got the right positioning. How do you think this will play out? Do you think it'll be broad-based equity indices that have a massive pullback? Or do you think it'll be pocket sectors in the same way that it might be in the economy, pockets and regions that get hit? Yeah, uh, it's, it's a good question. I think uh, the three things I've been thinking about, if I can uh, put it all together. The first, I think, is, you know, the reason that recession matters is because of market leadership changes. That means that uh, this overweight of large cap tech is likely to come to an end if we have a recession because then the leadership will be a different group of companies and to the degree that you're overweight those companies you're going to underperform perfect example is during the tech bubble that it, even if you had invested in the uh, tech companies uh, in 1990 i believe it was 1999 before they went on their massive rise you saw a massive spike up in outperformance even if you, uh, you know, got into the Dow Jones Industrial Average and missed out on that, that, uh, that uh, you know, blow off, you would have outperformed, you would have been outperforming for a period up to uh, 2014-15, you know, years and years later, uh, you were underperforming because you were overweight the NASDAQ, even before uh, getting the, the massive returns at the end of the cycle. So the re reality is, is, is that uh, when you're dealing with this massive disparity between how well sectors are doing, when you think about the AI revolution and how people are getting bulled up on uh, large cap, cap tech again, it's uh, with 40% return in the NASDAQ 100, that's a problem for those who are over leveraged to that. Uh, the second thing is, is, is that, you know, uh, the depth of the recession uh, in, in shares could be very large. As you were saying, uh, when you look back at 2001, when you look back at 2007 and eight, because 2022 is an aberration relative to those two episodes. If you're about to retire, then you're in big trouble because uh, your nest egg is going to be underwater relative to where it was before. So from, from a market timing perspective, that, that's important. And the last thing is that when you look at the S&P 500, we're trading at like 19, 
uh, and a half times forward earnings relative to an average, which is more around 16 times forward earnings. And so we're already overvalued. And when you look at those other factors I was talking about in the context of that overvaluation, and, and we're talking about overvaluation over the last 20 years, which is also a period where uh, the multiples are much higher than they had been partially because the discount rates were lower. When you think about the potential for permanently higher discount rates and a multiple, which is much higher than the average multiple over that period of time, the the potential for underperformance over a longer period of time or a a drop that's that's significant increases a lot. And so I think that the recession at a minimum being the the catalyst for uh, market leadership change makes one think about uh, how equities respond if the environment's not a benign economic environment. And do you think, you know, going into this sort of this leadership change, I think probably the most vociferous two camps are you don't get the leadership change. Tech continues to outperform because of the um, policy response to a recession, i.e. lower rates, etc., probably more QE, etc. Fine. That's one. But then the other camp is, is that, yes, and we're going to see the outperformance of emerging markets, particularly commodities specifically, um, maybe energy, but, you know, there's certain within the commodity space. Now, I kind of fall into probably the camp of I think there is this long term bull story in a lot of commodities. But as I think has become clear in the last six months, China is not growing or using its credit growth in the way that it used to pre 2018, which is not build loads of cities, buy concrete, buy copper, etc. So if China's not there with the classic sort of support for the commodity, um, kind of the commodity horizon, as it were, do you think that that still is the right place to go? Do you still think that commodities might be the leadership winners if we change out of the tech, or do you think something else? Yeah, that, that that's a great question because you know when you think about it from an upside mentality, and you know I'm obviously the TL and and rich FX, so I'm thinking about it from a much more sort of like you know defensive posture. Uh, the question is, is who's the next leader and how can you outperform based upon being involved in those sectors? Uh, um, let me demure and say that uh, I'm much more uh, thinking that there's a period of time before those new leaders emerge where, uh, you know, hiding out in defensives uh, might be the way to go. And and that is, is, is that, you know, if you get 4% uh, of nominal returns on a 10-year treasury, perhaps, uh, that's enough. Maybe you're, you're overweight cash. You're getting 5% on, you know, uh, money market funds and short-term treasuries. And then you make the switch over, you know, when there's the tradable bottom in, in equities. And by that time, it's clear, you know, uh, what the market leaders could be. Um, and, and, and so I think that that might be a better way to play it rather than, uh, getting into the, uh, the the sectors that will lead. I don't think that I have enough information at this point to know uh, sustainably who can take the baton over from large cap tech if large cap tech uh, falters, which I think that they will. Yeah, I mean, it's, I've looked at, um, for instance, I look at the um, stock 600 um, mining sector. And on the 14th of, of August, when we're filming this, it was testing a neckline of a, a long-term head and shoulders. So although I kind of have this, probably like a lot of people, a long-term bullish thesis, short-term recession, if it's global, never normally a good thing. 
Um, one sector that nearly always does outperform on a relative basis, but that means you've got to do a long short trade, is the energy sector. Um, I think three out of the last four recessions, the European energy sector did outperform significantly with only COVID, where we were all locked down, where it didn't. So I sort of, I look at those and I do think that within this next five or 10 years, there's going to be this realisation that all the expectations for energy transition can't take place until you spend a lot of money investing in the dirty elements to get us to transition. So I think that eventually the floodgates get reopened of investment into those sorts of stocks. So I still think that, but you know, that's if you've got a five to 10 year view, which most people actually don't really have unless they've given their money to someone else. Um, so, so then it kind of goes on to, do you see that, you know, do you think that the US itself, which has been the beneficiary of outperformance, money's been sucked in, et cetera, but it's been a tech story primarily. Do you think that the US can rotate away from tech and still be a leading global equity market? What I mean by that is it's obviously going to be the biggest relevant, most relevant one, but the leading one. Or do you think that this this change in leadership is also a change of leadership away from the US to maybe uh, those emerging markets? Because I struggle with Europe, you know, they say, you know, it's still got so many impediments that people say, oh, Europe might outperform, but I, I kind of struggle with that one. Do you think the US will lose its leadership or do you think it'll just be rotation and carry on leading? Yeah, uh, very great question, uh, uh, Roger, because uh, my thinking is that, uh, again, we, we don't know. Uh, I, I like Japan as an example because uh, there are a lot of changes there that are afoot that we haven't seen in, in 30 or 40 years. Uh, I like emerging markets because they uh, tightened before and they have the potential to untighten now in a way that's positive. And then you talk about the commodity story. And I would say LATAM over Asia uh, because of the connection to China and Asia. But at the same time, the United States is uh, leveraged to energy, uh, which could be a uh, number one, just from this perspective that you're talking about, a winner, but also from an inflationary perspective. If we have uh, a uh, inflationary bus versus the deflationary bus that we had um, before, then energy will win. And of course, the United States has is, is leveraged to energy. So it could well be that you just uh, rotate sectors, uh, overweight different sectors in the U.S., and you still make out relative to those other um, economies. I still think that w whether or not it's an inflationary or deflationary bust is not apparent at this point in time, though I tend towards the inflationary side. And so that's why I think uh, waiting, you know, waiting out with an overweight in cash, uh, short term treasuries, et cetera, might be a play to be able to deploy more capital when it becomes much more apparent, you know, what, what the leadership change is going to be, but also what kind of environment we have. Because obviously, if we have a um, an inflationary bust, i.e. Uh, inflation's still high and, the, and the, the central banks can't get against it, then we're going to have discount rates that are much higher. That's very negative for uh, long-duration assets, not just uh, long-duration treasuries per se, which I see you know, moving up in a, in a um, you know, bear steepener type of trade, but also the, the large-cap tech stocks that we're talking about. I think before we came on to this, for instance, we were talking about Apple, uh, I, I said, you know, Apple had a terrible earnings quarter just now, you know, when with Apple trading at, you know, 30 times earnings, et cetera, or more, a $3 trillion market cap, uh, 
uh, if their if their peg ratio is is weak, uh, when you have like the discount rate going up, that's very negative for that particular sector. So uh, to summarize, I would probably lean towards thinking yes, the United States can uh, continue to have market leaders, but just outside of large cap tech, probably energy. And one of the things which, you know, you're talking about there, the deflation or the inflationary bust, what I've actually found fascinating by both these camps, because these are some of those tribal visceral camps that you see on Twitter, you know, it's inflation, it's deflation. But actually, they're talking the same thing. So the, the, the sort of deflationary camp is saying debt, demographics, etc., is profoundly deflationary. And it's probably true. But then the, the inflationary camp are going and the political response to that is fiscal, which is profoundly inflationary. So actually, the, the point there being is that it's the deflationary kind of super tanker trend means a fiscal and inflationary response, which probably means we do get that coming and going, which I think is, you know, it's, it's a, I'm always fascinated that some of the people who have the most angry hatred of each other actually are talking often along very similar things with often maybe just different timings. Now, just changing slightly because your other hat is the FX hat. And a lot of what we just discussed is probably going to depend on what happens with the dollar. And again, that's the other one, inflation, deflation, dollar up, dollar down, end of the dollar. That's the other big tribal battleground where you get real hatred on, on Twitter. Um, it feels, you know, there's the camp which is twin deficits. There's going to be the, the, um, the Treasury and the Fed are always going to be doing policies which require them to effectively create more fiat and more liquidity and therefore undermine the dollar. Then the, the dollar camp is like, well, the US has to do that. So does Japan, Europe, China, everywhere. So therefore, the dollar is still the safe house. And historically, dollar up is generally bad for emerging markets and commodities. Dollar down is generally good. And I'm not got any reason to disbelieve that that pattern will change anytime soon. But where do you stand on that? Do you think that this is a twin deficit dollar down story or a slowdown problem dollar up flight to safety? Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, by the way, uh, you, you called X Twitter. You know, the, the company formerly known as Twitter is now X, as you know. I can't. <laughs> but uh, let me just say that, uh, <laughs> um, the, you know, the um, what I think, by and large, let's, let's go back for a second to 73, 74. I think that, you know, the, the Fed does not have a mandate. Uh, uh, Jerome Powell is not Paul Volcker. So to the degree that we have a high pressure economy with, uh, you know, a people hoarding workers, uh, it's more akin to the mid 70s. And the response will be to let inflation come down to, say, uh, 3%, 2.5%, and then call it a day. And then, uh, you know, the inflationary pressures will, will start to uh, rise again. So that speaks to me to a uh, response in the United States, which is monetarily speaking, uh, relatively positive for the dollar. So the death of the dollar is out. Then the question becomes, what do the others do? I think that, you know, relative to the position that they were in before, the Japanese certainly look interesting. And they're usually a funding currency. The Swiss, they have, uh, they also look relatively interesting, but Europe doesn't by comparison for a lot of different reasons, which we can't go into. And so then when you think about the dollar smile in terms of, you know, dollar high when bad things are happening, somewhere in the middle uh, otherwise, and then high again when we have a crisis, 
I tend towards thinking that uh, we're relative to emerging markets, which have tightened earlier. Uh, the dollar is not as robust as it otherwise would be. So that does leave some room for uh, especially LATAM, commodity exporters, uh, for you to be bold up on, on those regions. Uh, but, you know, U.S. versus Europe, I would still go with the U.S. U.S. versus Japan, I probably would punt on, on that particular score. But I think the dollar is uh, not going to 120 uh, DXY unless we get some sort of crisis. And, but it's not, you know, as you've seen it, 98 DXY was sort of the low for this particular cycle right now. Uh, we're, we're trading around 102. We can continue to trade at those levels. So I think that that's positive for emerging markets, uh, LATAM in particular, not for Asian emerging markets. So it sounds like what you're saying there is, um, you know, both the, the bulls and the bears and the dollar camp can now hate you un uniformly because it's neither going up nor down, which is actually, you know, we expect <laughs> everything to go up or down. And, and half the time things do go sideways for long periods of time. And actually, that's a good thing, because, you know, I would say it's, it's not actually whether the dollar goes up or goes down. It's how quickly, because every, if it just grinds up or grinds down, people can adjust. It's when it moves kind of, you know, too quickly for your investment horizon. And that's kind of what we had seen. But re recently, it's been meandering. Even when it's sold off, it's sort of sold off, not, you know, not too dramatically anyway. So I think that's, that's probably, I mean, that's probably a good thing because that means that sort of other fundamentals can be at play rather than having to worry too much um, about the currency. Um, does that, I mean, does that, do you have a view on gold? Because gold is one thing which I've noted with recent um, uh, collaborators that we have seen um, gold you know, 2050 is the high. Yes, we've been back to the low 1900s, but it's not far from the all-time highs. And yet nobody cares about gold anymore. And when I talk about gold miners and junior gold miners, actually starting to see hatred. And you may recall from the Real Vision days that if we did anything on gold miners, everybody loved it. Today, no, no one seems to care. And yet we've seen things like gold holding in even when real yields had that squeeze higher recently. Do you think gold is something which given that we probably get a slowdown, given we probably get more government juice sometime in the next two years, people should just have a little bit, maybe buy some calls on it, because it feels like if it breaks this beautiful pattern that's currently in existence, there's a significant amount of potential upside, can't say absolute upside, but it looks very attractive on a basic technical pattern if we can break 2050. Well, you know, I think uh, uh, the concept that a lot of people are hating on gold is very positive for gold in that sense. But I think that there could be more hatred to gold going forward. And if, if we think about this as a inflationary bust that still is in, in the front, and then you know the, the, the response, the government response, then that would mean that we still have a time to wait for uh, you know the ultimate uh, action there. Yeah, so when we think about this in terms of 73, 74, say this is 73, you know, then we saw a response. That is the Fed cut, uh, you know, uh, and then we were off to the races again by 76, i.e. Uh, inflation started to bottom. It took a, a while for it to bottom and then it came back up. And it was then that gold uh, started to, uh, to move much higher. So I think that uh, as with everything here now, because everything's stretched out, we have a, a, a holding pattern, a delay. Uh, you know, the existing biases that we have have a, a chance to play out more. And then that's when 
we'll, we'll get the response. Uh, that's when we have the opportunity. And that's not until late 2024, 25 uh, sort of time frame. Okay, so it's, again, it seems like this is something which is, um, it's a slow motion one. Again, I guess if, if people are thinking about this, rather than getting the sort of sudden gratification of a, an enormous bear market down and then bounce back out, this is something which plays out over time and, and basically a lot of patience. But do you think when we go beyond this, because let's say, let's pretend that we have a recession. Let's pretend it's not a straight down, straight up. But then looking beyond that, um, there's a, a lot of credible arguments that suggest that because we've seen fiscal turned on post-COVID, because of the environment, the, the structural underlying difficulties of this environment, we might see cycles that are, are much um, more concertina together. So, you know, prior to this, we're used to eight to 10 years between recessions. Prior to 1982, we could see, you know, a few recessions on the trot, then a little bit of a growth period, then a couple more recessions. Do you think that we're going to go into a period where G volatility of GDP increases, therefore volatility of inflation increases. Do you think this was a one-off bout of inflation or do you think it goes down and then it comes back up and we more like both the 70s and the 40s where we saw three um, different spikes. Do you think that we effectively have to prepare ourselves, maybe not actually trade yet, but prepare ourselves for an environment where we get all risk assets going up and down much more frequently and with much more kind of volatility in the actual longer term trend than we've been used to when we've seen these things go bottom left, top right for five to 10 years? Yeah, uh, that, that's a great question. And I would have said something like that uh, post 2008, but then look look what happened. We had, uh, you know, a, an amazing run uh, as a result of QE and, uh, and uh, you know, zero rates and so forth. So I don't have an answer there, but I can say that what we're, when we think about deglobalization and we think about U.S. China, what we're seeing basically are uh, a, a massive shift in terms of the the macro forces away from deflation towards a much more sort of pro-inflationary environment. Meaning that you know when you think about fossil fuel uh, transformation, uh, there's a lot of friction there uh, that will cause inflation. When we think about the re-onshoring. Uh, when we think about the uh, chips race between the U.S. And, Ch and China and Europe now involved, we're looking at more friction as we as, as these different uh, players get up to speed. So all of that speaks to uh, much more friction, uh, much more sort of uh, a macro environment where uh, there are constant shocks that are uh, more inflationary and then potentially, you know, on its heels, deflationary as we adjust. So, you know, my, you know, I don't have a specific view, uh, but if you, if I, if I were forced to take a view, I would say that, yes, I think there's going to be more volatility. That sort of environment where you have all these frictions and defrictions is much more similar to the period pre-fall uh, of the wall, pre-integration of China, where the constant deflationary force was keeping things down. Now we have a lot more uh, volatility. With, if you sort of bring all those bits together, when you talk about, you know, the, you know we've gone through this deglobalization, we, we, we're not gone through it, but we're talking about deglobalization. We're talking about potential for emerging markets. We're talking about changing leadership. Do you think that um, looking at, you know, because when people talk about deglobalization, that's the sort of negative spin. You could say re-regionalization re is the positive spin. Do you think this could be a really good, opportunity for effectively 
Um, I might want to say geographically, not in terms of thousands of miles, but America's backyard. So Mexico, South America, resources, um, you know, relatively cheap labor, big opportunity for a lot of, sort of Southeast Asian productivity to shift back but to the sort of the, the Americas region. And therefore, if I'm thinking, oh, okay, emerging markets, it's not the broad brush by EEM and every emerging market goes up 2000 to 2010, but I've got to pick my emerging markets. Do you think that LATAM is, is going to have a good springboard because you know, let's assume that the US comes through the recession, still does well, that regionalization is going to have to reboot, retool, and that probably is going to be quite a big opportunity for people. Yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting. When I was at Real Vision, we had a guy, Jay Pulaski, who always talked about the regionalization of supply chains. And I think that uh, in retrospect, he was prescient as to, you know, the, the tectonic shifts that were ongoing and that now, you know, COVID has created, uh, you know, a fast forwarding of that. So I think that, the you know, I look at LATAM and... Uh, you know, Mexico maybe in particular as uh, beneficiaries of that that shift. You know, it's a beneficiary in terms of, the, you know, their monetary policy was on target ahead of time. Brazil, same thing. And to the degree that we do this regionalization, which I think is going to happen, then we're also going to have, you know, more robust growth. All of the things that were benefiting China before will, to a degree, move and shift to other places. Certainly, it'll shift to places like Vietnam, um, as people uh, try to shift global supply chains and they'll benefit to a degree. But I think much more of that will shift to this whole regional structure and that will benefit the likes of Mexico first and foremost because of the North American environment. But then there are other company, uh, countries within Latin America that could benefit from that as well. And you think about, um, I'm thinking uh, there's some countries in South America, uh, I believe it, uh, Chile is one of them, that have uh, a lot of lithium, uh, for instance, when you think about uh, um, EVs. So a lot of these commodity producers that are leveraged to uh, the transitions that we're making where all the frictions are can benefit doubly from that transition, but also from the regionalization process as we deglobalize. And actually on that, when we sort of talk about the transition process, I mean, it's, if I look at it at face value, it's a very sort of um, positive, long-term trending story. But do you think there's also a risk that actually what we've done is we've um, superimposed the theoretical requirements from moving from A to B, where B is sustainability and A is where we are today. And actually we're in cloud cuckoo land because there's no way we can do any of this quickly enough. And so the idea of the upside in some of these industries, which I'm sure will benefit, and we talk about there's not enough, there's too much demand for the supply. Well, the problem with that is that people just give up because if you can't get it out of the ground and there's not enough materials, people have to go, we just can't do this. Do you think there's a danger that we've got ahead of ourselves in the excitement for something, i.e. the solutions as it were, or some of the raw materials for the solutions, when actually there's just no, no way we can do this physically in a meaningful way. And actually we're going to be in 10 years time going, uh, we need to do something else now. You know, I think that uh, we, we will make the transition, but it'll, it'll come in, 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 in starts and stops. I think that uh, let's use uh, electric vehicles as an example, you know, uh, that uh, the infrastructure really just isn't there. But I don't think that it's a fad that's going to go away. I think it's actually something that will continue to have 
will ramp up the percentage of electric vehicles uh, will continue to increase as a percentage of all vehicles. Maybe it won't get to 100. Who knows? Maybe it won't even get to 50 percent, but it'll be incrementally uh, much more than it is today. You know, uh, a percentage that's like more uh, four to five times the amount that it is today. And then that will happen over a period of time in terms of fits and starts. Uh, we'll take a look at what happened with uh, Tesla EV prices, how recently uh, e- the EV prices were cut and then they were raised again, and that the the, the value of Tesla EVs has cratered uh, for, for used cars. Um, those are the kinds of, of shifts that I would imagine that we're going to continue to have. But, you know, all of these, uh, these trends are, uh, there's a lot of reason behind them. Uh, and I think uh, the, you know, moving away from China is another one. Uh, the fact that we had the war in Ukraine is a reason to, uh, to, to do that because we see the risks of globalized supply chain. So I think that we're on a road and while it's going to be a difficult road to hoe, uh, there'll be constant uh, feedback that says, yes, we're on the correct path. And that we may, you know, have three steps forward and one step back, but you know that's an inexorable uh, move, and and that's partly driven by the fact that once you move in one direction, you as a company, you as a country, um, uh, you have you have sunk costs that you're very unwilling to give up, and once those sunk costs are made, it, it, it creates a momentum that is very difficult to undo, and and most of those those things are already at that point where the momentum is is too great. Okay. Um, so just now thinking, sort of when I say thinking beyond, but just thinking about how investors should approach this, because, um, you know, what we talked about the death of the 60-40 because we saw bonds selling off and equity selling off. But in some ways, because now we've seen bonds sell off so much and yields go so high, we've got the re- potentially the rebirth of the 60-40 because your starting place is better. But it sounds like from what you're saying that, Yes, we slow down, we might expect yields to fall, bonds to rally. But it sounds like what you're saying is that we shouldn't expect those yields to offer as much protection to an equity portfolio as we might have been used to, because we shouldn't expect 10-year yields in, in Europe to go to negative values anymore and in US to go to 1 or 1.5. Sounds like you think that those yields will be stickier in those sort of mid to low single digits, like 3%, and therefore we have to be more creative and maybe we have to be a little bit more active ourselves in our investment uh, decisions. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right, Roger, that active management is the key. You know, different sectors will win, uh, different countries will win, and they'll win at different times because we have that start-stop mentality where, you know, all these changes that we're undergoing will, you know, they'll be uh, wrought with uh, with peril at various times and we'll get some, you know, uh, sell-offs and those things and then things will shift again. So it'll be a much more shifting environment where it'll be very difficult. And then you have the, the, um, the whole rate environment where central banks will be very reluctant to cut anyway, having had the experience of what happened at the end of the whole zero rate regime, which was an aberration in the history of, of, of the world from an interest rate perspective. Uh, that means that, you know, you're not going to get to zero, maybe you'll get to 3%. But to the degree that you don't get to, uh, to zero, what that means is, is in uh, recessions, like the next recession, what's really going to happen is, is, is that long rates will be forced to move up to the level of short rates. 
uh, in order to uh, deal with the forward thinking about how the economy is going to play out versus what what used to happen, which is is, is that uh, the, the the bond markets would predict that uh, short rates would come down, uh, and therefore we would have a, a um, you know a, a long rates lower than short rates, but, and then the Fed would actually act upon that, and rates would come down. Instead, what we're going to pro- probably see is is that people will think about that response as likely, but then they won't get as much juice out of it as as they would have expected. That short rates won't come down as much as they wanted. Does that mean that, that, you know, the Fed, everyone's looking for the pivot? And I keep on saying to people, if, if you're looking for a pivot and that pivot just moves long in time when it's actually a plateau. And there's a, lot, a credible, you know, a lot of people sort of say, what we should expect here for the Fed to do is, yeah, they can pause, but a pause is not a pivot. A pause is, let's see what's happening and we might rate, hike rates again. Do you think we could be in for the, the Fed just say, yeah, we might stop here, but don't expect to cut anytime soon. And therefore, actually, you know, it's just that higher for longer. Um, and we've just got to get used to it. Yeah, you know, and the, here's the thing. The debate that's happening in, in the Fed right now is between the hawks and the doves, uh, where the hawks are saying, let's raise rates, and the doves are saying, let's not raise rates, but let's keep them the same. No one at the Fed at this point in time is saying, let's cut rates. So, uh, the you know, what we're really seeing is, is uh, what's going to happen if we get dovish is that we're going to see the hawks seed uh, to the doves, and then we'll get to five and a half, five and three quarters percent and hold there and see what happens. How long can we hold at that level? What happens to the economy? If the economy doesn't fall out of bed and everything's fine and hunky-dory, we'll still have 4% unemployment. There's, there's no reason to cut. You wouldn't cut in that environment. And then you ask yourself, what's the term premium associated with that? What is the, uh, you know, what, what do uh, forward um, Fed funds futures say about the rates down the line? That's when we get this sort of increase in the longer term interest rates, which will be negative, obviously, for um, uh, treasuries, but also negative for, uh, for equities at the same time. So in terms of the sell-off of equities versus bonds, again, that 60-40 portfolio will be very difficult to get the same kind of returns out of as they were uh, in the, the, the environment where rates came down uh, from a very high level. So then if we sort of just put this all together, sort of summarizing, I think, what, what, what the views are, it sounds like basically um, yields probably go high. Ten-year yields are probably due to go a little bit higher. Technically, they look that way. The Fed might pause, but they're going to pause. They're not going to pivot to lower rates. If anything, they probably still have more desire to raise rates because, you know, we spent 10 years worrying about being on the zero bound and having nothing to cut. If the environment's fine, they probably would want to raise um, from here if they could. Um, We need to see a big move in unemployment before we are going to get into a proper recession. Um, And that therefore this could be, if we get the recession, it could be quite elongated in length with it being pockets of recession. Therefore, maybe less focus on just the outright short on the equity market, but actually on pockets. So it might be tech that rolls over, but at the same time, you might be wanting to roll into you know, maybe the energy stocks or whatever. But this sounds like it's, it sounds like rather than looking for, rather than looking for one big blow up and recovery, we need to look for lots of different blow ups, different recoveries through time, through space, as it were, different geographies. It's going to be damn hard. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be a trader's environment by the sounds of it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, which is great if you're a good trader, but you know most people aren't. And and you know the uh, the, the the problem is 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 uh, closet uh, indexing. That is is like uh, getting fired because you uh, made a call or people withdrawing their money from your hedge fund because you made a call that was non-consensus and you were wrong. I mean, if, if you fail and everyone else fails with you, that's fine. You can keep your job. You, you can keep assets under management. But uh, in an environment where it's constantly changing like this, you are going to be tested uh, at one point in time where you're non-consensus and the consensus is going the other way. A perfect example is this year, is that if you were underweight large cap tech, uh, so, during an earnings recession, little did you know that as interest rates were going up and we were in the middle of an earnings recession, you would have a 40% return in the first half of the year on the NASDAQ 100. That's, that's not a place that you want to be. And so that's a very difficult environment to uh, invest in. Uh, and, you know, my hat's off to those who can benefit the most from that environment. Uh, it, it means patient capital without a doubt. Otherwise, uh, you're going to be whipsawed in a very uh, severe fashion. I mean, I, I think people should look at, I mean, what I think hedge funds should do is go back to how they used to be, which is they become un, they should be uncorrelated. Me as an investor should treat them as an option where I put 10, 20% of my cash in there, hoping that they are going to be completely uncorrelated and magnificently so, because I've got my money in, let's say the S&P, which will do what the S&P does. And when the S&P goes down, I want my hedge fund to be up 200%. When the S&P is going up, I want my hedge fund to be down. Well, I don't want them to be down, but if they're down 30%, I don't mind because I've got my big position. I just feel that that's how you know, we, we forced our hedge funds to become institutions. So they've become, in many cases, pointless. You want them to be the ones that wang it around up 100, down 50, up 100, because they're probably going to give you that little bit of optionality in your portfolio. So, you know, active management, I think everyone talks about the death of active management. We actually want active management to be super active and completely uncorrelated rather than as you said, quasi-benchmarked, get shot if you start to fail, but actually you should either be failing or outperforming almost 100% opposite to what the actual broad passive market's doing, in my view. So that's how I would see it. Well, you know, let me just say on that, uh, I agree with you. Unfortunately, uh, there are too many people chasing this particular uh, mark. And, and when I say that, think about private markets as well, because that's the next thing to, to think about. Because when people talk about uncorrelated returns, there are tons of people who have, you know, piled into private markets saying that they were patient capital. There, there's the very large potential in this particular environment for underperformance there. And that's where you'll see, uh, you know, uh, problems cropping up uh, over the next time period. It's, you know, the hedge fund industry is very large. And that means that, uh, you know, this, this, this closet indexing, this, uh, you know, wanting to herd around specific positions is going to crop up over and over again. Uh, and the herding into private markets, especially uh, commercial real estate, is going to come back to bite a lot of these funds, uh, not just hedge funds, but private equity funds. We're going to see this playing out over the next, say, two to three years. Yeah, I think actually the summary to that, and I've heard a lot of people say this, is that the crisis that is unfolding, and we've seen it with the gilt market in the UK and with what was owned by the banks in the US, is that this is going to be a crisis of assets managed and therefore asset management rather than a crisis of, let's say, credit or a crisis of banking, which was obviously a slightly different environment. This is more, we've taken these, these assets on board in an environment where we thought zero forever in terms of yields and interest rates. And the private markets, they're holding them, they're not marked to market. 
And the longer this goes on without the true blow-up that causes the Fed to cut rates and yields to drop, the more difficult it is for these guys to not have public marks. And so that's kind of the risk of the assets under management in the private markets and in some of these longer-term um, asset managers as well. So I agree. I think that, that's, that's one of the biggest problems we have is the asset management crisis of assets that have been managed, as it were, or mismanaged, as it might turn out to be. Um, Ed, it's been great having you on. Um, fantastic stuff. Uh, love to hear all your thoughts from uh, kind of inside the big machine, as it were, uh, particularly on the rates in the FX market. Um, and <laughs> it's, you know, it's a negative view, but it's not a it's not a doomsday view because I think, as you said, it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity out there. Yeah, I would say that, and uh, you know, to give it a slightly more doomsday view. Uh, I have been somewhat surprised at the ability of markets to uh, to rally in the face of uh, earnings recession and uh, and you know uh, sticky long term or short term rates. The longer that that happens, the more potential there is for this washout that uh, that we've been talking about. So from a positive perspective, if you if you have some dry powder, that's good. But you know, for most people, they're not they don't want the washout. Uh, I don't want the washout, but uh, you know the, the chances of that happening are, are are greater now than they were at the beginning of the year. Yeah, brilliant. Well, great to speak to you. Um, uh, thank you very much. And hopefully, you know, sometime down the road as we we expand this series, uh, we'll catch up with you again and see how the world has evolved. I'd love that. Thank you, Roger. Appreciate it.